Welcome to a new episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and today I'm honored to present the first installment of LA Studio Legends, a series of interviews with some of the most talented musicians from the Los Angeles area who performed in many film scores by John Williams over the years. My guest today is world-renowned violinist Glenn Dictoreau. Glenn Dictoreau is one of the most prominent American corset artists of his generation and has been the concert master of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra for 34 years, from 1980 to 2014. In that time, he served under esteemed music directors Zubi Mehta, Kurt Mazur, Laurie Mazel, and Alan Gilbert. In this role, he also performed as soloist in many great concertos from the classical repertoire including the Violin Concerto by Erich Wolfgang Korngold. Glenn Dictoreau started his career in his native city, Los Angeles, as an enfant prodige, making his solo debut at age 11 performing Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, where his father, Harold Dictoreau, served as principal of the second violin section for 52 years. After studying at the Juilliard School of Music with renowned teachers, Dictoreau joined the Los Angeles Philharmonic in 1971 as associate concertmaster and then becoming concertmaster at age 25. During those years, he also performed in the violin section for many film sessions, including several of John Williams' scores recorded in Los Angeles, including The Fury, Jaws 2, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and 1941. Dick continued to recall film soundtracks even after moving to New York, doing soloist work for films such as Interview with a Vampire. After stepping down as the New York Philharmonic concertmaster, Dictoro returned to Los Angeles to focus more on teaching and passing on the musical legacy that spurred his own career, training a new generation of concertmasters and principal second violinists. In this conversation, Glenn talks about his long and distinguished career, both as concertmaster and studio musician, 
offering his own views on his collaboration with John Williams, but also with another legendary American icon, Leonard Bernstein. Very, very happy to, to have here as a guest with me, uh, Mr. Glenn Dictoro. Glenn, thank you very much for being here with me today. It's a pleasure, Maurizio. Thank you for asking. Um, Glenn is, a, of course, a fantastic musician. He's a, he's a wonderful violinist. And he has a long story concerning the, the evolution of the, of the style of the playing in the Hollywood film scores. And I'd like to start our conversation, Glenn, with your musical formation and the legacy of your own family. You come from a musical family in the sense that your father, Harold Dictoro, was a member of the LA Philharmonic for more than 50 years, playing principal in the second violin section. Yes. And you started playing very, very young and made your debut as an enfant prodige, a child prodigy at age 11, performing the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto with the LA Philharmonic. Uh, so how much the musicianship of your father was an inspiration for you when you were a kid growing up? Well, very much so. My father was a wonderful violinist. Uh, he was in the San Francisco Symphony uh, at the age of 17. He was actually a soloist before that, but because of uh, times and he had lost his father they needed to move from new york to to san francisco and he was the youngest member at 17 years old of the san francisco symphony with pierre monteux as music director mm -hmm. uh, the great pierre monteux was nobody knows him that name now but he was the one that premiered the rite of spring when they threw yeah. all those vegetables at him at the <laughs> the famous riot yes <laughs> famous riots but my father was very very intent on being a productive member of that orchestra but then he went to world war ii and uh after the war he decided that he wanted to move to los angeles because of the studio industry but before he could get to that uh, he was contacted by alfred wallenstein the conductor at that time of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And he said, we know your reputation. Monteux has recommended you. We want you to come in uh, to play as principal second of the Philharmonic in Los Angeles. Uh, and he said he would only do it okay. He would accept only for one year because his goal was, of course, to be in the studios, which was far more lucrative Yeah. <laughs> uh, people, there was a studio system in those days, and you were on salary in the 40s and the 50s, early 50s. As a member of the studio, you were on call basically 12 months out of the year, but you were well paid, and uh, it was the prime job to have, of course, as a musician. And many, many uh, refugees from different countries during the war and after the war came and they had the most incredible musicians here in Los Angeles. This yeah. is the atmosphere that I grew up with. And yeah. I, of course, started to pursue my career. Uh, you know, after I left home, I went to Juilliard and did the Tchaikovsky competition. And uh, then I 
became uh, engaged and married very young and decided to move back to Los Angeles after school and uh, still to pursue my career as a soloist. But I had a, a call from Zubin Mehta who said, you know, I know you as a soloist, but we have an opening for associate concert master. Mm -hmm. uh, would you consider it? I would let you go off and play your solos as often as you wish, but we would love to, to have you please audition. There were just three of us auditioning. Uh, at that stage, and uh, was chosen, and what went along with that job basically was uh, the studio work. Because once you're a position player in, in an orchestra that's local, mm -hmm. they want the best orchestra. John Williams loved to use uh, people from the orchestra because mm -hmm. they knew they have to play together as an ensemble. Yeah, and not they the other musicians were not as used to that they, they did that too but you know he always liked uh, principal members of of the orchestra and uh, so there i was working in the studios and the la Philharmonic and pursuing my uh, solo career doing all three things yeah but uh, i had the, the first opportunity to work with john i believe was in the mid 70s mm -hmm. uh, and i mean i just recently looked up my, on my record of just the, the movies that I made in Los Angeles, not to mention after 1980 when I went to New York. Yeah. Or quite a few after that, but just with him alone as as the, the composer of the score, this is just a, a, the list of what I did for him. And mm -hmm. that was Black Sunday, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jaws 2, Towering Inferno, Midway, The Fury, Conrack, 1941, and Superman. with John and you know always my father would be on, on the sessions too and uh, he knew him quite yeah. well and, you know certainly on a first name basis because they worked together as colleagues when he was just as a pianist on the sessions and uh, well he was first of all not so unassuming and so respectful of the musicians mm -hmm. and that's very unusual uh, I might say because there are many musicians or conductors and composers who stand on that podium who get a little bit uh, testy, I might mm -hmm. add. John was always the consummate musician, amazing for his timing. Very rarely did we have to wear a click track, which was, of yeah. course, uh, you know, guided with the, the timing of the, of the movie that we yes. also seen at the same time. 
he was so good at it, he said, oh, gentlemen, take your ladies, take take your uh, headphones off because I know how to follow this thing. Yeah. And it would be more expressive without it. So we, yeah. would do, we would do one with a click track and then inevitably we'd end up with the one that we did without the click track because it sounded symphonic and like you're in a concert. Of course, he had the best orchestrators. I'm, I know that he did a lot of it his own, but he was one of the busiest uh, uh, of all composers for movies uh, in that era. And then it even got, of course, much more so in, in the 80s and the 90s. But um, superlative. I mean, yeah, you know, I spoke with the other musicians who played for him over the years, and it seems that everyone loves him because, uh, you know, of course, for the richness of the music, the way he treats uh, the, the various sections, the, the soloists and the, the groups inside. And he seems to know very well how important is the performance of, of the orchestra, for example, in a, in a scene of a movie. So according from what you've seen in your experience with him, how crucial is for, for John to get the perfect orchestral performance and balance for the perfect realization of his mission as a, as a film composer. It's very important for him. He's a perfectionist beyond belief. And uh, 
you know, we always did our best for him, but sometimes it just didn't fit the way that that take went. And we would do sometimes takes eight, nine times. That would be unusual for him because he was a very adept conductor as well. Mm-hmm. There are very few composers uh, for the movies who are actually terrific conductors. And John had that. He was just a, a brilliant musician and very well trained. Of course, he went to Juilliard and uh, the whole nine yards. Uh, just somebody that you know, impeccable, impeccable technique and artistry. Uh, I mean, even in the 80s when I wasn't working for, because John did all the scoring in Los Angeles, I yeah, working for other uh, other composers uh, in, in New York for another 20 years doing scores while I was concert master of the uh, New York Bill. But very often John would come and be our guest conductor for a special concert. And in one in particular, he uh, he invited Spielberg and Scorsese. Yeah. To and this was just to prove how important the score is uh, for a movie. And basically what they would do is show the film, let's say a scene from the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the boulder is chasing Indiana the Jones. Uh, yes. <laughs> and they showed it without any music, with the sound effects, of course. Yeah. And the audience listened and, you know, we could tell there wasn't much excitement there. Then we proceeded to do it again. And John conducting with Spielberg on the stage and listening to uh, with the music. And all of a sudden people were riveted and, you know, they start yelling and screaming and (laughs) clapping. It's just phenomenal what what the music adds to 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 film and i think very few people are used to that of course now there are films even made with that music and very sparse but you know maybe that's for a a very special feeling uh of mood that they want to set up yeah yeah especially when he works with someone like spielberg who loves having uh, scores with with a certain presence within the the film and uh, adding a lot of emotions and lots of um character actually because the music becomes a character in the movie for example you said that you played uh, not in the original jaws but jaws 2 but if you look at at those films and especially the one directed by spielberg it's crucial the role of the music how much it brings out the character of the movie very much so and i remember attending the movie of jaws i didn't work on jaws the first one but the second one but i remember attending it and in the movie theater, listening to this introduction, this incredible overture mm-hmm. that builds from this t- very, very quaint town in, in New England and what he managed to do with the music and, and the visuals. And uh, I, it just was overwhelming. I didn't, who, who needs the movie after that? It's just, it was so complete. It was a, a really symphonic experience. And later, I mean, I was lucky enough to. At another concert John conducted, it was a pension fund, and uh, I got to play his uh, Schindler's List, yeah. soloist, and and then later I've been using that, and Far and Away, another one, another movie that he did later on as a wonderful violin solo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's fed me a lot of solo work as well, and <laughs> yes. we all appreciate him for that, for what he, <laughs> he loves the violin, of course.
Yeah, he also wrote a beautiful violin concerto. He did. And uh, did you ever perform it? I did a little bit, but I didn't get a chance to perform it. It's uh, it's quite different than <clears throat> his his other music. Yeah. And when I first saw it in the seventies, I, I was so busy I didn't have a chance to really learn it at that point, unfortunately. And uh, I said, "This is John Williams. It's it's so adventurous and uh, you know atonal." Yeah. And uh, different, so different than what I was used to, but extremely well well constructed. And later on, I believe he composed a bassoon concerto. Yes, he did. For Judy Leclerc in, in the Philharmonic. Right. And I played solo violin part in that with her. There's a, a movement that has both. So. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a kind of a, of a witch's dance or exactly. something. Yeah. It was very exciting. He is really one of the finest composers. We're lucky to have had him in, in our lifetime. Yeah. And, uh, I feel fortunate that I'm still friends with him. He's, you know, he'd always tell me when I was at Philharmonic and not even thinking of retiring. <laughs> when are you going to come back to Los Angeles? You know, it's, it's, New York is one thing, but you know, you can enjoy your life much more so <laughs> by the beach and, uh, you know, take it easy. I said, well, John, you're, it's very enticing. Maybe I can work on some of your movies again. He says, by all means. So anyway, here I am. <laughs> Actually, he lived the, the majority of his life in L.A., uh, save for maybe for the time that he was going back and forth from L.A. to Boston when he was conducting the... That's the, true. That's true. The, the Boston say. Parks. Yes. And when I, in preparation of this interview, I, I went back to, to listen to a couple of John Williams' interviews, and, and I caught one he did pretty recently, and he was talking with Jim Schwader from Classical KUSC Station, and they were talking exactly about the evolution of the style of the playing in the Hollywood Orchestra back in the 1930s and 40s. And he mentioned specifically, talking with you, uh, about the, the style of the violin playing in, in those orchestras in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, something that truly, as you were saying before, came from the European emigres who carried that sound with them. I once asked recently Glenn Dictoro, who you will know, was the concert master of New York Philharmonic for so many years. Glenn, tell me about the old violinists that were here. 
Not so much Felix Slotkin, he was younger, but people like Harry Bluestone or Lou Raderman at MGM, who sounded like Millstein when he played sure. Previn's melodies and so on. And I asked Len, were they really great violinists? He said, oh, yes, they were. They were fantastic players, even though playing only in a studio and only limited repertoire, on the, although sometimes very demanding. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you specifically is because as you certainly developed a, a point of view, uh, because you played many years in Los Angeles, and so how much important was that tradition in the creation of what we perceive as the sound of the movies and the sound of Hollywood? It was of the utmost importance. Uh, that was basically our, our model. Uh, the immigrants, we're talking about immigrants that came from Russia, from France and, uh, and, and Italy, and they all, I mean, all these incredible artists that mm-hmm. really at that time, you know, between World War, World War I and World War II, you couldn't, everybody could not be a soloist. These are solo caliber people that came in, and you just, you have to listen to some of the scores of uh, Roja and uh, Steiner, and just to listen to some of the solos that come out of the orchestra are that sounds like Heifetz, or that sounds like Piatigorsky, and yeah. every bit on the same level. So you're talking about orchestras filled with talent like that. I don't know any, I mean, obviously they came here because this was where the money was. And this was where the safety was. They, they either yeah. were escaping Europe in, in a very uh, bad bad time. And uh, and I, happened to, I was very lucky because I myself studied with many of these people. I studied with Erno Neufeld, yes. who was concertmaster of Universal and all those mm-hmm. In the 40s and the 50s, that sound like Yasha Heifetz, as good, <laughs> or him. and Jerry Vinci, who uh, who was concertmaster in Young Frankenstein and played all the solos. Oh there. yeah, that's so beautiful. I can that next yeah. to him, that solo in the studios, and uh, Anatol Kaminsky, another wonderful artist uh, who soloed with the New York Philharmonic uh, in the 40s and 50s. They all wanted to come out and 
had a different type of life, not traveling, but having the secure, security of, of uh, you know, earning a good living and playing the great music. Yes, and they also they, they had this incredible breadth of, uh, of style and opportunity because I was talking with this with Leonard Slatkin, which I had the great pleasure to, to, to have a conversation with him a few months ago because he, his parents were great musicians who played in the orchestras, uh, Felix Slatkin and Leonor Slatkin. Uh, and those that was a generation of people trained in the great European and Russian conservatories, as you were saying, and suddenly ended up doing commercial work for for Hollywood movies, but also playing, you know, in a Gene Kelly musical, or maybe in a string arrangement for for a record with Frank Sinatra. So this incredible breadth of, oh, yeah. of well, uh, I was also lucky to study with the Hollywood String Quartet as a yeah. quartet player. My brother and I played. I was first, my brother was second, and uh, and Felix's son, uh, Fred, played the cello. And it wasn't, uh, at that point, uh, Leonard wasn't uh, playing the viola, he was studying this conducting. Mm-hmm. So it was the, the, the former principal of the L.A. Phil, Alan DeVerich. We were called the Junior Hollywood String Quartet, and we would go to his house on Sundays and learn from the great man Felix Slatkin how to play in the String Quartet, and he was so incredible. He was uh, a very warm and generous human being. Died much too early. Uh, of course, all, you can hear his playing in the vast amount of recordings that Hollywood String Quartet made, as well as the solo work he did at Fox mm-hmm. as a master there. And his wife, Eleanor, was the cellist of the, of the Hollywood String Quartet, was uh, either at Paramount or Columbia. Uh, I think I think she was at Warner Brothers because they were kind of the competing orchestras, you know, uh, Fox right. and Warner Brothers. And she premiered the Corn Gold uh, Cello Concerto, yes. which is you can hear her playing. And you know, this incredible level is what I grew grew up with. And we're, I played for all these people. I studied with at least nine or ten from the studio. I, as I say, I was sort of. Passed around. My father being in the business. Can you listen to my son? I want you know. You need to give him some lessons. And so, until I went to Galamian, I mean, for four years, that was that's the longest I've ever studied with anybody uh, at Juilliard. But before that, I as well as Noam Blinder, who was Isaac Stern's teacher, that was in San Francisco. I studied with all these people. I feel my education was so vast Mm -hmm. and rich that I could really sit down and do anything, even though I wasn't trained in an orchestra and hired as an associate concertmaster in Los Angeles in 1971 without much experience. I had chamber music experience Mm -hmm. and studying with all these people online, I I, I feel like I thought I could do the job even without the experience. Was there a lot of... uh back and forth back then in the early 70s between people playing the Philharmonic and people playing in film studios? Yeah, well, especially John. John would always hire David Fruzina and my father and myself as we were all Mm -hmm. title players in the L.A. Philharmonic. And uh, that happened in New York, too, even with with other composers. Mm -hmm. I worked very much as concertmaster of the New York Philharmonic. Yeah. 25 years worth of working with really wonderful musicians in other movies. And uh, I think that's what why John got such an amazing effect that 
he got the job done quickly. You know, there's a lot of music that he would write for every movie. It's not just yes. they would go on and on. And you needed a symphonic type sound coming out of that. And he would hire no less than 60 to 70, I mean, the least amount of musicians. Yeah. And yeah. you had to be ready to go. You know, there would could be like 40, 50 cues and maybe three or four sessions and that's it. Uh, and do, do you have any particular memories of stories about some of those movies with John? I mean, Close Encounters is probably one of Especially my... Especially Close Encounters. I felt very, very... Uh, <laughs> I was riveted by the... Because we saw bits and pieces of the movie and yeah. Richard Dreyfuss was, you know, one of my favorite actors. And I just... It was just astonishing and this theme... Bum, 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 bum. Like, these are just, you know, a, f a few notes. How did he think of these notes that you can never forget? I think that's brilliant, that this communication is in the movie is about music mm -hmm. and not about language. And uh, that was, that to me was amazing. I'll talk about Star Wars, of course, and uh, sure. it's brilliant. It, it's brilliant. It's a, a little evocative, I have to say, of the planets by host. But John made it his own. And, yes. And and that was, he was a very clever, that put him on the map, and I'll tell you why. It wasn't about the money, as you know. They didn't have the money to pay him. The story is that he says, I'll do your movie to, to, to Lucas, and he said, but since you're not paying me very much, he says, I just want a percentage of the, of the proceeds. I want a percentage of the movie, of what of the profits. And at that point, who knows, even if it was 1%, he didn't have to work after that. Yeah. <laughs> it was, even though it wasn't recorded in Los Angeles, it was recorded in London, and they 
did a very good job, but who? What orchestra did not at least once a year play yeah. Star Wars? I mean, every we did every year we would play these concerts in L.A. and New York. We even took Star Wars score to to uh, Dodger Stadium and played outdoors with Zubin conducting the, on the big screen and you know. I think Zubin Mehta was the first one to conduct the the, the actual concert suite in 1978. Absolutely. And you know those that music is very challenging. Yeah. The LA Philharmonic says if you want to be in our orchestra and you take the audition, you have to do Harry Potter. And I've, I've trained kids to take that audition, and it is incredibly hard. As the, the violent part. <laughs> Possibly, it's, you know, Paganini is nothing compared to if you play that. <laughs> Amazing. So John is—he knows how to write and get the effect. I, I was listening to another score of his uh, recently. It was. Um... And the movie isn't much well remembered. It's called Hook by Steven Spielberg, the, the, the sort of Peter Pan sequel. Yes, I saw that. But the music is so so amazing and and so so complex, but so exciting. He wrote these amazing woodwind parts. I would imagine the face of the of the flute section when the scores presented in front of their face that oh my god I have to play this because you all had to really play this sight reading right? Oh yeah, you basically read it. Maybe you read it twice if you were lucky. Then the red light goes on and you're ready to record. And uh, it's you know as far as the winds and brass, this is why they hired the great Vince DeRosa, great horn player, and they hired him as, and they would give him not three, but four checks because he needed one take. He never failed. 
I, nobody ever heard him make a mistake or blow anything that's not pure. So he was just un, unbelievably worth every every cent that they paid him, but also a great horn player. So, but and of course, John Williams' scores are extremely brass heavy. Not heavy, but just it's, it's complicated, complicated <laughs> as well as the strings. huge symphonic score to get it together with just two or three takes it took the best musicians from around the world and uh, they were all happened to be living in los angeles at that point at least most of them <laughs> yes and in fact but when when you when you went to new york playing for the new york film uh, throughout the 80s and 90s also you you continue to do some film work as you were saying quite a bit yes uh but was that for you mainly let's say just another gig for for you or did you feel that there was something special that interested you to continue pursue film recording maybe oh. being able to work with, with john or with jerry goldsmith or other great composers yes. well there, there were quite a few movies that i did in, in new york but i was always concert master for those and uh, that's why i was called there were many times there were solos You know, you had to, the solos were not ready for you to see. I remember one in particular with a Brad Pitt movie about, and I can't remember the name right now. It's about him as Dracula. Uh, I think it's uh, Interview with a Vampire. Yes, and there was, you know, and I got to the session. I knew I was concert master, and I'm looking through this thick amount of music and going through all the, the just at the first break, you know, and I'm looking... And I see the word solo on there, and it's like four pages of incredible writing. You know, it's like a concerto. I said, now, exactly when am I going to learn this? <laughs> I had another break to go, so it's that 10-minute break, and then the next 10-minute break, I sat, instead of socializing, I sat and tried to learn this thing. And uh, you only had two or three takes, that's it. They, they had to move on, and I think I, I think I managed to nail it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you have to have nerves of steel yes. in some of these sessions. And you're surrounded by all the colleagues, of course, and you want to do your best.
So there was an exciting, exciting few years playing in, in the studios there too as well. But uh, you know, one should never underestimate the the skill of the studio musician, of what they have to do in so little time. Mm -hmm. And you know, I have to admire the LSO for that reason too, because they're the, the Brits are known for being able to put things together like incredibly yeah. quickly and uh, being pretty accurate about it. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I was listening to, to a recent score by, by, by John Williams, I think one of the last Star Wars movies, and you, you hear some incredible playing and say, this is, it really, really sounds like a proper symphony orchestra, like you you are in really New York or another other great European city, perhaps. So the level is so, so high and it, it's, Keeping high, I mean, even over the years. It's getting, it's getting better. I remember uh, in the 70s, I, there was a gentleman named Lee Holdridge, also a very fine yeah. composer. Composer, for, yeah. Composed, uh, for composing for, for film, wrote me a, a concerto. And he oh, wanted to get wow. something recorded. And I have a, this a recording of it. We went to London to have it done. And the first time the people saw that music, and it's, you know, it's, it's a very challenging score was at the session and they read it once and then the, the red light goes on and we're ready to record. They put it together, we did it in two sessions, the whole concerto. That's amazing. So, I, I, have, I have to check it because I, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah, know that. It's still out there. If you if you want, I'll try to, uh, it's probably online. You can probably get okay. Holdridge. Yeah, it's good yeah I know I know him. He wrote some really nice film music and yes. I didn't know he, he wrote also concert music. That's interesting. I'm just trying to remember who did the music now for the interview with a vampire because that is an amazing score as well. And I, uh, Elliot Goldenthal, what is he? Elliot Goldenthal. We did a couple of movies with him. Yeah, amazing very, composer. Yeah, brilliant guy. Brilliant yes. composer. And uh, those things stick with me. They really do. Speaking of, of uh, <clears throat> things I did in Los Angeles when I was concert master of the LA film. We did a, uh, a, a movie called uh, Turning Point with Boryshnikov. Mm. And we played, of course, music not composed for that. There was mostly music of Tchaikovsky and mm -hmm. incidental music. But uh, I had a lot of work on that. And that was sort of exciting. We did, And they hired the whole Philharmonic rather mm. than studio musicians to do it. And Slatkin was a conductor. Did you also play in... Uh for Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, yeah. He was another great, great musician. I mean, he's not as well remembered as others today, sadly, but he was such an amazing, phenomenal okay. composer. Absolutely. He was a really nice guy, too. So sweet.
Some of them were, were not so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, John Barry of the 007 movies. Yeah. A very curious human being. He would hardly communicate. And then there's the Italian the Marconi, right? There's a Marconi, yes. Did, did did you did you play for him? I think he did one thing in Los Angeles. I thought I remember working for him. And there was another Italian, also great, and he was very feisty. He was on the <laughs> podium. Was not. It was very. He had a very short temper. <laughs> he would he would do a Tuscanini, you know. <laughs> you have been to to Cremona here in Italy, right? You did yeah. some master classes. I, I played on the the uh, Joachim Stradivarius that's in the museum there. I got to play the Brahms Concerto in the museum just for about five minutes, and I said, "This is magic." You have this instrument. You get this. The curator takes it out once a day to play on it. I was in heaven to be able to play that instrument. What a and what a town! I can go from shop to shop and hear the wonderful new luthiers that are are making beautiful instruments. It's well, you know, there's nothing like the Italian sound. They have the voice and they have the sound, and uh, we try to duplicate that. <laughs> It's beautiful that this is a tradition that is still being carried on. Absolutely. <laughs> In the years that you played with the, Philharmonic, the New York Philharmonic, you established a special relationship with a, one of the NYPhil best friends, which is, of course, Leonard Bernstein. Uh, you performed his serenade for, for, for violin many times under him. So uh, since Lenny is one of, of the other heroes of mine, uh, so what are your recollections of him and as a musician, as a composer, as a human being and how much relevant his figure uh, is today still. That was one of the, the uh, greatest moments of my life was to be able to perform that piece. I learned it. I didn't know it, frankly, before we started to perform it in the, in the mid-80s. Um, I was asked to do this piece and I said, what is this piece? And they said, well, Isaac recorded it, but then it went away. Isaac Stern, it, you know, probably recorded it, I would say, in the late 50s or early 60s. And it was a piece that he performed extremely well, but it just didn't seem to get onto the repertoire list of many other people. And uh, at that point, Lenny had brought it out again. He had come back to the New York Phil as the guest conductor uh, in, in residence. And uh, it was an amazing, the fact that uh, here was this piece that had been sleeping for 20 years. And I said, this is a great piece. This is one of the best pieces I've ever heard for violin in an orchestra. And, uh, you know, as I was learning it and then went into, uh, into the rehearsal, Lenny would always be very vocal about when he would be conducting the tutti part. <laughs> I don't know if I can use expletives on this interview. Okay. <laughs> going wild and jumping up in the air and going, he said, Look at me and said, this is the best piece I've ever written. <laughs> I, you know, you can imagine the word he used. Yes. He wrote this piece, you know, sort of around the same time as West Side Story. And it's, it's a very important piece. And it's now on, yeah. on the repertoire of most yeah. violinists play it. But it's, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely uh, awkward. It's not for everybody's hands. It's written with mm. a lot of leaps and skips, and but boy, does it have so much flavor to it. 
I was just remembering one thing he said, but before I even played a note of that piece, when we were rehearsing, we came into the rehearsal, he says, you know, I just did this with Midori and she broke two strings at Tanglewood. Not one, but two strings, and she went on. He says, of course, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one to live up to. I said, I'm going to do my best, Lenny. And the, the story goes that we went on tour with it and did it about ten times. The domestic tour through the, uh, the East and the Midwest and ending up in Los Angeles and San Francisco. By the, but I would say by the eighth performance, he comes into the, my room and he says, you know, I see that you're sort of morphing, you're, you're developing a different, a different style. I was becoming a lot more passionate about the piece and uh, I felt it very much more romantically that perhaps that he felt that he mm. composed it. In. Mm. And he says, you know, this is a neo-classic. This is, you think Stravinsky. Mm. I said, yeah. money far more passionate than anything Stravinsky ever wrote. You don't <laughs> understand. You wrote this incredible passionate piece and that's the way I feel that you're going to have to live with it for the next few performances. And he, he sort of it grew on him. The fact that I was playing it maybe a lot more like the concert masters of the early 40s or the 50s in the studios, that kind of passion, uh, yeah. the Russian uh, approach to it that I felt it deserved, and uh, it's just that piece is open to a lot of different uh, approaches, and that's what makes it so great. So he, he, really, uh, he really loved it.
I remember one of the last one of the last performances at Royce Hall in Los Angeles it was attended by Michael Jackson. He was close with him, I guess. And there happened to be a a fire alarm that went off in the second movement, and we had we had to disband and wait until they they found out it was a false false alarm. Yeah. And Michael Jackson came back with his gloves on, and they were he and Lenny were just so close and hugging each other. It was, it was quite, he just <laughs> attracted this kind of, I mean, everywhere you went, there was either great politicians or yes. people, of, you know, in the music industry, that giants of the music industry. He was a certainly a magnetic character. I mean, it was, it was he, you know, that, but we would do rehearsals with him. It was, this is a, an interesting New York Philharmonic story that uh, he was doing one of the Mahler symphonies and of course, we had open rehearsals was the, the dress rehearsal and we he came out and there was of course at least a thousand people who were let in for the dress rehearsal and he turned around with his mic and he started speaking to the audience <laughs> for about 45 minutes <laughs> at least that's almost you know one of the, the model third or I forget second which is you know almost two a long piece <laughs> So he's going on and says, oh, oh, yes, I guess we better start rehearsing now. <laughs> so the thing is, because of Lenny, all these laws existed in the union that you say you're allowed to go a half hour overtime and other you have other things, a doctor appointment, your teachings, people have to leave. <laughs> so what happened at one o'clock when, you, you, you know, I, of course, stay, but people start walking off the stage in front of this audience. And he's watching this happen. People pretty soon, about 20, 30 people had to leave. It was already one yeah. And he got so angry, Lenny, he threw his baton down. He said, You are not professionals. What is this? <laughs> and he stormed off stage like a child who had been denied access to the, uh, you know, the car uh, or some, just uh, like a child. He stormed <laughs> off stage. And the audience started to boo the New York Philharmonic. <laughs> we had to sort of run off stage before we were, they were so angry, but they don't they didn't realize that Lenny had no concept of, of time. Basically it was you're at his disposal constantly and it's it was about him. But what a genius. He lived uh, with the music, in the music, for the music. I mean it's oh, it was engulfed in the music and he made you believe it was so incredible. He made you believe that the, the last movement of this pathetic symphony should last for 20 minutes and never end. And that's one of the recordings we did with him uh, before he passed. Mm. And I, I think he was feeling the end that was coming soon of his own life. And uh, it's, it's, it's as slow as it is, it's still riveting. And, uh, and his Mahler is like that. You know, there was the first time I ever worked with him was with the with the Resurrection Symphony Number no. Two, Mother, and I had never worked with him before. It was the first time. I was, I think, it was '83 or '84, and uh, he starts, with no beats. Just there's the beat, and yeah. then everybody knew where to come in. But a little, bum bum, and I. I looked around and I said, where the hell am I? <laughs> this is not our orchestra. I've never heard a sound like that coming out of our orchestra. I said, 
it's just immediate transformation into mm -hmm. something that is unearthly, a sound that is this esprit de corps that he was able to create with this energy, and you can't you can't really put it into words. I don't know what how they uh, these you know people like him or Tenstead and certain people were able to do this with mm. not certainly great technique. It's not about conducting; it's a, about believing in yes. what is happening up there and this being able to consolidate that everybody felt, felt the same way. Probably something that is underneath, uh, you know, it's behind a, the notes, inside the notes. I mean, as you said, you sound like you're a musician. I'm not a professional musician by any means. I, I just, you know, entertain myself <laughs> playing a little bit of piano. But <laughs> I'm a, I'm a huge, huge music lover. You know, since I was a little kid, and I have the, the, the great luck to to grow up in a family where music was constantly playing, and I had a beautiful brother who introduced me to classical music when I was a little kid. And I had John Williams music, actually, that was the gateway for me to orchestra sound, to symphonic music. And that's one of the keys, why one of the reasons why I'm doing this project, to celebrate his music, because he opened the door for so many people, so many young people to orchestras, to symphonic music, and inspired a lot of people maybe to pick up an instrument and start to play, be the violin or be the, the trumpet or be the, uh, you know, uh, many other instruments. And this is one of the most enduring aspects that, and why it's important to celebrate his legacy, I think, John's legacy. And according to you, so what do you think will be John Williams' role in the future in the music history of not just American music, but orchestral music, orchestral music in general? Well, I think he's an inspiration to all other composers, you know, even if they're going a different direction with what is being scored these days, 
he is he is the uh, gold standard of of all of that. Of course, he's a, also a product of what came before him in, in the way of like Korngold and Steiner and you know true in symphonic composers before they ever reached Hollywood. <clears throat> Basically, so many of them were, as I say, escaping uh, the perils of, of the, the first, Second World War and needed a place to hide and they needed a place to work and they brought serious music. So people say, oh, Hollywood music, it's uh, second rate and it's, it's, it's corny and it's... That was what was being composed in the time of Strauss and, and you know, Korngold was right up there as a child prodigy, writing operas at the age of 13 and 14. This is serious music. You can't ever say, you know, Hollywood. It's not. <laughs> it's just. It's it's on a different level, and uh, you know, anybody who says it's a second-rate, you know, music for the film, you just have to listen to some scores from from that era. And this is what I think John grew up with and was inspired by this kind of compositional style and being able to, I mean, certainly orchestrate like as good as anybody, as good as Strauss. And, you know, he just knew what to do. And certainly he knew how to write a melody and and to keep you riveted through the whole movie. And it's true. Spielberg said it. He says, without music, you would have never been, you would have never known his name from anybody else's. That's why this liaison between the two of them, he won't make a movie without him. So I, I fear... John is getting up there. I'm, I'm hoping he's in very, very good health. And he comes out every once in a while with new movies. So And also conducting 
the orchestra uh, around oh, the yes. touring, and and you played with him in several live concerts with the NY Phil, and he also did uh, the the wonderful arrangement he did for from Fiddler on the Roof when he wrote that amazing cadenza, that. yeah. And, and, I played that, yeah. And how different is the approach of when John is conducting in studio versus when he's preparing a concert, a regular symphonic concert? I think the, his ethical approach is exactly the same. He wants it on the same level. Uh, he has more time, perhaps, to do it in front of an orchestra because usually you get three or four rehearsals as opposed to no rehearsals in the studio and the, the money is flowing out and they want to conserve. So, I mean, it's basically, he had much more, the luxury of time to be able to prepare a concert was, was what he really loved. And I think that's why he, he did it so much. And uh, of course, incredibly popular. I think that most people program this symphonic, uh, rather the uh, movie music that sounds symphonically correct. Every year, if not two or three times a year, in order to be able to fill the halls. You know, you can't always do it with uh, you know, Stravinsky or you can't, even with Beethoven, you fill a hall, but not to the extent of once you announce a John Williams concert, you cannot even get a ticket. So it's bringing this element of another type of, you know, of, of the population in, into the uh, concert hall, which I don't think would have been able, wouldn't have been possible without a John Williams and uh, he's extremely generous about that.
one final thing I want to ask you is uh, about your life as a teacher, because you devote a part of your life to, to teaching at USC, Thornton School of Music in LA, also in Manhattan School of Music. And Juilliard. And Juilliard, yes. So I guess you get a, a, a lot of joy in, in giving back to, to, to young aspiring musicians. So how crucial is for you this aspect? And is it something that every mus musician should do at a certain point of their life? Well, of course, not everybody is is uh, really talented or, or at least uh, geared to pass it on. There were great, mm. great artists such as Heifetz, perhaps even Milstein. There was such phenomenal artists beyond belief, but not always great communicators. And uh, I went in, in the studio, too. So I felt that with studying with Heifetz, which I did for about a year, It was about, my God, let me see how you do that and uh, just demonstrate, not about verbally being able to uh, to influence anybody. But, uh, you know, I've learned because I had so many teachers how to do this. And I started teaching when I was quite young. And I feel it's extremely important for me at this point in my life to pass on what these kids will never know about working with people like uh, Bernstein and conductors that have been dead for a long time and it's just you know they will never know that and uh, i and about the great violinists of the past luckily we have so much uh on youtube that people can see it just uh, the touches of, of the keyboard to be able to show us what it was like and the standard that was created in, in the uh, 20th century was i don't know if it's ever been equaled It's just set, it's so high, <clears throat> and I want I want the uh, kids to know about this, and so I feel that I can pass it on. At least I'm doing something constructive and productive for the next generation. <laughs> and that's a lovely thought, and I think it it brings us back also to to Leonard Bernstein because he was also not just a wonderful conductor, amazing composer, amazing pianist, musician. It was also a great teacher. He loved, you know, giving back really his own knowledge to, to everyone. And that's that's I think one of the one of the key ingredients of, of music, especially nowadays in these times. I think we need that kind of attitude to, you know, to include them as much people as one can to, to enjoy Absolutely. the great the great stuff we we still have at our disposal. Because this is art that will be forever with us. I mean, have you ever seen his the history of music in three or four minutes? Did you ever see them on, on YouTube? Uh, I think no. I I I remember the the young people's concert because they were aired also in Italy back in the eighties. There was kind of a rerun on the local television. Uh, mm -hmm. So I I got acquainted with with Burst and with with, the, with those. That's great. We're lucky we can get this all online now. But yeah. Watch his, his lectures, the Harvard lectures. Uh, mm. They are so amazing, even for musicians. They can learn what he, I mean, he brings it. He's such an amazing communicator that he, he breaks it down so that anybody can understand and what it's all about. And uh, concise, you'll never get bored. And he's demonstrated on the piano. It's it's really worth your while to uh, to listen to these lectures and the most entertaining musician I think that ever lived, for sure. And one of the very unsung 
heroes of the com- compositional world. He's, he's other than the West Side Story and other than the, the Serenade. His symphonies are, are marvelous. And, and, yeah, know. the only regret I have about Lenny is that he did just one film score. On the waterfront, yes. Yes, his right. only you know, regular film school. Yes, of course, exactly. there's West Side Story, which was turned into a movie. Yeah. And I know that that wasn't a, the really ideal experience for him, that he wasn't going, it was kind of, a, he left Hollywood with some notion that it wasn't for him. But probably I think that he would have read, read write some beautiful film music if opportunity, probably the right opportunity came. Well, he felt his, his uh, life was going in a different direction, certainly. As a music director, you have very little time for anything else. Certainly to sit down and sure. write scores would have been impossibly hard for him. Yeah, Especially he got distracted by something like the New York Philharmonic and, you know, little things. Little things like that. Oh, yes. Have you, have you seen the, the clips online about the, the conducting debut of John with the Vienna Philharmonic? No, no, I haven't. Can you send me that link? Yeah, sure, absolutely. It was, uh, it was, I mean, mind blowing. You know, here finally comes John Williams in Vienna at the Musikverein, conducting his film music with the Vienna Philharmonic. It's That's unbelievable. <laughs> they loved it, obviously. Yeah, totally. It was. Uh, they they are playing like they are greening every time, you know. And it's also a sign that things are, are probably have changed for the better. I think that oh, the, okay. even uh, an institution like the Vienna Field doesn't you know feel uh, you know ashamed to play uh, the great film pieces from John Williams or other great composers. So, so and it's ironic because if you if, like we were saying at the beginning, if you think that uh, Steiner, Gorgold, and oh, yeah. Voxman were all coming from that world. It's something like now finally it's going back in the figure of John Williams, which is kind of uh, forming this ideal circle, you know? You're absolutely right. Glenn, thank you very much for for our talk together. I hope to speak again with you soon, maybe in the future for another, you know, other conversations about your your career, your fabulous artistry. I mean, oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much again, and speak with you soon. I hope. I certainly hope so. Thank you, Maurizio. Great pleasure. Stay tuned for more exclusive conversation with LA studio legends coming soon. From Maurizio Caschetto, thank you for listening until the next episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast.
Thank <laughs> you.